Hi everyone and welcome back to The Hopeful Activists. I'm doubling up and bringing you an episode two weeks in a row as this week is a special episode celebrating the life of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I'm speaking to another incredible activist and close friend of Desmond Tutu, Reverend Edwin Arison. Desmond Tutu died on Boxing Day last year after living a life committed to ending apartheid and speaking out for justice. Apartheid was implemented by the Africana National Party who won the 1948 election in South Africa. And apartheid extended and institutionalised racial segregation and it lasted until 1991. Tutu later chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, set up in 1995 to help heal the country and uncover truths about the human rights violations from the apartheid era. Edwin shares about his own activism against apartheid, which he was jailed for many times. Edwin followed Desmond Tutu into ministry in the Anglican Church in South Africa and was ordained by him. He kindly spoke to me, even as he is in mourning himself. And I think you're going to find what he says incredibly challenging, especially his response to being interrogated by the police. And the final words of inspiration from the life of Desmond Tutu spoke deeply to me. I hope you'll feel just as encouraged and challenged as I did. So Reverend Edwin Arison, thank you so much for joining me on the Hopeful Activists podcast today. Thank you so much, Abigail. And I love the name of the podcast, Hopeful Activists. Uh, I think that's a wonderful name. Thank you. Yeah, I think it, it, it does sum up pretty much what we're about. You know, we've got hope in Jesus and yes. uh, we want to make a change. So that's <laughs> that's where we're at. Mm. So we're going to think about activism today, particularly in South Africa, and particularly about the life of your friend, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, or the Arch, as you knew him. Well, yes, thank you. And of course, he passed away on 26 December. So many of us are still in, in mourning, but remembering him fondly. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it was one of those uh, almost international acts of mourning I felt at the time. I don't know if you felt that there was, you know, everybody felt the same um, sadness, perhaps not obviously not the same extent as you knew him so well. Mm. But yeah, there was an international grieving, I think. Um, Absolutely, there was. Um, And in fact, there continues to be. Um, Tonight, there's a service in, in the Diocese of Massachusetts in the US and over this weekend I was speaking on three different at, at three different m- memorials mm. um, and it will continue I know there's one on the 9th of June there will be a, a memorial service at Westminster Abbey so it will just continue I think for, for the next mm. few months and just for I mean most people do know but just for those who don't know Desmond Tutu was a cleric and a social activist and he was a giant of the struggle against apartheid in South Africa he was described as the moral conscience of his country. And like you said, he died in Cape Town on the 26th of December. Edwin, could you tell me about your first encounter with him? Yes, my first encounter was in a very public setting, of course, in the city hall in Cape Town, where um, where, where I heard him speak for the first time. It was at a, at a rally, in um, conscription campaign rally. These were young white males who refused to serve in the apartheid army and um, he was there to to support them 
and of course I, I hadn't met him and but I, but I I obviously heard about him quite a bit and I was sitting um, up in, in in one of the galleries in the city hall and as he was speaking he he started raising his hands towards the end of his speech and I literally felt that he was lifting me up and most of us are standing there in the city hall felt the same and we all stood up almost at the same time and I in 1985 already I I understood the charisma of this person um, that I only later on discovered was rooted in a very deep spirituality as the disciplined spiritual life of you know often four to five hours of silence per day um so so but that was the first time i met him in, in 1985 and then of course uh, later on i met him in johannesburg in a smaller setting also in 1985 and it's pretty well known that um archbishop tutu was partly inspired to join the church of england or the anglican church i should say because of an encounter with the white clergyman Trevor Huddleston, who treated his mother with just a simple act of respect, doffing his hat to her, and Tutu said this was mind-blowing to me. Edwin, would you mind just sharing a bit about your experience growing up under apartheid in South Africa? Yes, of course. I mean, um, I was born in 1964, and so apartheid um, had started in 1948. So so when I was born, I was born under apartheid, and everything was um, racially divided. I mean, I couldn't even go to to just any beach. Um, and sometimes, when we when we could go to a beach, you know, we found ourselves on the worst possible beaches because there was just so many rocks you couldn't swim there. Um, so, but but right next to it, there was this wonderful long stretch of white sand. Uh, that was a beach reserved for white people only, uh, but we could not, we would not dare go onto that beach because the police would come and arrest you. Um, so, so those were the daily little indignities, of course, that we had to suffer. But on a more fundamental level, um, we were given a particular kind of education in schools. Um, uh, there are certain figures that show that. Under apartheid, uh, a white child would receive quite a huge amount of money, you know, for his or her education. Uh, a so-called coloured child less, a black child less, and so on. And so there were there were certain um, you know ways in which we were educated uh, for particular jobs. And so I suppose I was prepared for, you know, they they prepared me for factory life or something, um, but that was not to be. Yeah, so tell me, what was your approach? What did your activism look like, I guess, as you grew up? Yeah, so, so from school days, um, we, 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 we were activists from about 12 years old or something. You know, 1976 um, was the, the one big year when young people were killed in Soweto. That was the first year that I tasted tear gas um, because the police came into our schools at that time. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, every single year schooling was disrupted. So we were required, for example, on the 31st of May each year, which was called Republic Day, 
uh, we were required to stand and sing the apartheid national anthem. Mm. And our school teachers just said, no, we will not do it. And so on that particular day, you know, we, we, we would sing Nkosi Sikleli Africa, which was the, the national anthem, which, of course, is the, the anthem we sing today. Um, so, so we, in small little ways, we um, at school, we boycotted school from time to time and so on. And then uh, I became a, a church youth leader. And it was, it was as a church youth leader that I joined um, the struggle against apartheid. Uh, I began to join regional groupings, of ecumenical um, church groups. And um, I became the president of, of a group called ICY, Interchurch Youth in the Western Cape. And as president of Interchurch Youth Western Cape, um, I was then detained and arrested several times in, in 1985 and 1986. And what were the reasons that were given for your arrest? Well, you know, they didn't have to give us any reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, they, it was called detention without trial. And so the first time I was detained, actually, was just a few days after my 21st birthday. Um, I was living with my mom. And the police came into our house at 4 a.m. in the morning with guns and dogs and um, just, you know, came to arrest me because I was head of an anti-apartheid uh, church youth movement. Mm. And, um, well, they, they just kept me in prison. That year they kept me in prison for, I think it was 91 days. It was And it was on Christmas Day. So I was in, in on Christmas Day. I was being held in prison by a government that called itself Christian. And so naturally, um, I, I began to, you know, think about these things, uh, you know, how is it possible that a government that calls itself Christian with a so-called Christian constitution can hold other Christians in jail on Christmas Day? I mean, that just didn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, Archbishop Tutu wasn't Archbishop yet. Um, he only became Archbishop in '86, and so he only moved to Cape Town in 1986. And you were on the road to becoming an Anglican priest yourself. In fact, Tutu ordained you eventually, but you couldn't go to his consecration as Archbishop of Cape Town. Yes, because um, on on seven September 1986, when he was consecrated as Archbishop, I was sitting in prison. Um, and and they actually just released me on 9 September. It was quite cruel in a way. They knew that here was a an ordinant of the Anglican Church who probably wanted to be at the and of course I wanted to be at the the consecration of my Archbishop. But they just you know just held me in prison and they were it was quite random. Um, I mean I can tell you a little story of of um, being in prison as a as a young Christian. Um, every now and then they would they would fetch us. We were in single cells, um, and every now and then they would fetch us for uh, interrogation by the security police. And um, I remember taking my Bible with me to this interrogation. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you are, you are in a little, small little room with three r- rather big men uh, standing around you, being very threatening, you know, and asking you. Uh, quite aggressive questions. Um, but before they could say anything, I said, uh, before you start, do you mind if I read something from Scripture for you? And of course, because, because they were Christian, they couldn't say no. 
Um, and of course, they accused us of being communist. But here was a Christian in sitting in front of them wanting to read from the Bible, which, of course, I did. And I would choose some long text and, and just read it. You know? And then the next thing I said is, could I pray for you before you start? And of course, they wouldn't say no. And then I would say a long prayer for each one of them and for their families and so on. I think by the time I finished, they were they, they didn't know what to do. They just asked me one or two questions, and then they let me go. So I often say to people, I think I uh, the interrogation was worse for them than for me. If that isn't finding a third way, Edwin, I don't know what is. That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I think I think um, Desmond Tutu interviewed you and, and gave you permission to go forward for, for ordination. Yes. So what happened was that from 1984, I was in this process towards ordination. Um, and then he came into the diocese and he invited all of us on a weekend retreat with him. And so in May 1987, um, he, you know, he, he interviewed me in his little room. It was a small little room. And I was very nervous, of course. Um, he was a very famous uh, mm-hmm. archbishop, you know, that you had to be interviewed by, in this, you know, just by, just by yourself with him. Uh, but when I walked in, he was sitting on the bed, almost like a Buddha in a way. And he had a big pack of chips um, and, and he offered me this pack of chips, you know, and said, would you, would you like some of this? And we started talking. And, and I, I think most of the interview was about my prayer life, actually. Um, and, uh, well, by the end of that weekend, I was selected to, to start my theological studies in 19, January 1988. Yeah. Amazing. And what was the sort of... I don't uh, forgive me. I don't understand much of the um, life of the church in South yeah. Africa then or, or now. What did the activism look like in the church? You know, were, were most Anglicans uh, against apartheid, or was you know what what were the other churches doing? How how did it work? Yes, I think what happened was that um, eventually there was a bit of a split. I think between us young people and some of the older people. Um, I remember going to a to a church service with a UDF T-shirt on. The UDF was the United Democratic Front, and was the, sort of a biggest mass democratic movement in the country. And it was a really bright yellow T-shirt, and it says, um, "You know, UDF unites, apartheid divides." And some of the people in 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 the church that morning, I mean, it was a big congregation of maybe six six hundred people. Some of them felt that I was being disruptive. I was I was disrupting their prayer. You know, I was. Um, so it wasn't as if every single person was um, was an activist. But w- it was interesting, you know, my mother was not an activist, for example. But mm-hmm. the minute I was detained, she became an activist. And, and I think the regime th- at that time thought, if we can put all these people in prison, these leaders in prison, then everyone will calm down. But actually the opposite happened. My family became activists as well. Um, and so people generally started acting against apartheid and and small little, and I'm not talking about huge actions here, I'm talking about the UDF would, would call on communities and say, on a Wednesday evening between 8 and 9 p.m., please light, you know, put all put off all your lights in the house and light a candle uh, and put it in the windowsill um, as a sign of your solidarity with people who are in prison or whatever. And it was oh, just about everyone did it, you know. Uh, yeah. it, it was it was it was these kind of small little actions, these lighting of candles, that I think eventually the regime knew they 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 it couldn't go on, you know. They 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 had no support, very little support amongst amongst the the, the, the people. 
and Tutu was uh, famous for uh, advocating non-violence. But how do you, how did you feel about the facts that um, he was advocating non-violence? Well, I was actually very supportive of of that stand myself, um, and I'll, I'll tell you what happened. Um, some of my friends became um, active in the underground movement. You know, the the ANC had different levels of operation, and one of it was, you know, um, to join the underground movement. And I was actually approached to join the underground movement, and my answer was no. I want to be involved in non-violent um, direct action, and Nonviolence isn't something we could just talk about. We actually had to do. Um, and so, I mean, even nowadays, many people talk about nonviolence, but actually they, 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 they don't want to do anything. Um, and so, and so, so Bishop Tutu eventually said that we should use the adjective vigorous nonviolence. So, so this is not just nonviolence, but vigorous nonviolence. In other words, you do something. And he then, of course, locally, um, he would organize these big marches and so on, but internationally he would call for sanctions against the apartheid regime, knowing that that if if uh, the, the world stood up against uh, apartheid, it would, it would come crumbling down. So, yeah, it's absolutely so powerful to hear your story, Edwin. And um, the Archbishop, uh, the Arch, as you know, was was your boss. What yeah. was he like to, to work for? <laughs> I believe he almost fired you twice. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, we, we had disagreements. So even as a student, um, he, you know, before I was even ordained, he felt very strongly that we should not publicly say which political party we support. We, we, when I say we, I mean clergy. And I understood what he was trying to say, um, but but we were dealing with other realities. We were dealing with uh, pastors in our areas who were saying that the ANC is communist and so on, whereas we knew that the ANC was a broad church, really, and it was mostly mostly Christians, actually, within the African National Congress. So we had to try to make him understand that we understood why he took that position, but we had to take a different position. And what was, of course, what was fortunate in this case was that his wife, Mama Leia Tutu, also supported us. I mean, she also came out publicly and said she would support, she would vote for the African National mm. Party in the first election. I think I think what we should have said, I mean, both him and, and us, I think we, we should have said more. We should have said that applies to this election because it was a historic election. It was the first time we were going to vote in 1994, you know? Um, and we were going to vote for this party that actually was led by Nelson Mandela. I, I, I think we should have we should have been more clear, and he should have been more clear. So yeah, I mean that was just the first um, uh, big clash we had. But I mean this 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 happened even before my ordination, actually, because I was still a student when he when he said this. Don't you think it says something about the character of a person that you can um, stand up? you felt able to, his wife felt able to say that publicly that they disagreed with him. I think that's that's a, that's a good thing, surely, in a leader. Yes, yes, yes. I think that was the good thing about him. He he listened very well. I mean, I in the second mm-hmm. uh, moment, I remember he wanted me to go to one particular area and I, 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 I just got married and, you know, we didn't feel that, that we wanted to go there, but we were in a rural area. He actually listened very, very carefully, and he um, he changed his mind. 
so um, so that's one of one of his really good characteristics is that he 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 had a strong view, but he was very open to listen and to change his his view. And the arch went on to chair South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation yeah. Commission. I mean, it's fa- the famous story of him crying after he heard evidence of torture and mistreatment of anti-apartheid activists. It must have had a, a heavy impact on him personally. Did it impact how he felt about forgiveness, do you think? He had a very high view of humanity, and he believed that that people were made for goodness, that there was much more goodness in people than there would be evil. Um, and and he really, he was, he, I mean, he was very impressed with the fact that particularly black people in this country were all almost always ready to forgive. I think he was disappointed in the in the white response. Um, I think he would have you would have wanted um, white people to be much more generous and and to acknowledge you know what had happened and so on. Um, he didn't always get that, but I think on the whole, the TRC um, helped South Africans to uh, to understand their own history. Um, and then to start building the new democracy on a good foundation. He, he always said, we learn from history that we do not learn from history, you know. And, and he wanted to reverse that. And he wanted us to reflect on our, on our history. But it did take a huge toll on him. And of course, he, he became physically unwell. And he, he landed up in hospital uh, several times. And so we were actually a bit surprised that he, that he lived as long as he did. Yeah, how did, how did you find it, Edwin? Was it was it difficult for you going through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? I mean, I, I don't know whether you were personally involved, but just hearing all the testimony and, and the news. Uh, to be honest, um, I was not surprised at all. I mean, uh, of course, the detail, we, we never knew the detail, but when we said in the 1980s, when we said that um, the state had killed Steve Biko or the state had killed Matthew Goniwe, we had no proof that that was in fact the case. Um, and so what the TRC did for us was to give us hard evidence that this actually happened. But intuitively, we knew uh, what had happened. So it was really just a confirmation of, of what we knew. Um, fortunately, you know, we, we grew up um, not blaming individuals for the system. We always talked about... We are fighting the system, fighting the system. Uh, we were in our activism, in a sense, we were trained with this. So we were, we were never focused on the individual person who did something wrong, but it was the system um, that, that, that let these things happen. Ah, that's, uh, I think that's something that activists, yeah, is really important for all activists to yeah. learn, I think, you know, not to personalize. Do you, do you agree? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I hope um, activists understand that there is a there is a system, um, and that this system must be broken down. It's and the system, of course, is very creative. The system, the system is very tough. It, it won't just allow itself to be broken down. So even today, we we are sitting with the legacy of apartheid, um, and and it's not yet broken down. Um, but but you know, uh, it's not useful to focus on the individuals. There are, however, some people who. Um, who helped to build the system, who helped to maintain the system, and who did so deliberately. Um, so, so the former president, F.W. Klerk, who passed away recently, 
Um, I, I think Bishop Tudor was most disappointed in his testimony because while he while he said um, that he was, you know, he apologized and, and so on, uh, there was always a, um, uh, the word but, you know, was always there. And in a sense, that word always canceled out what he had just said. Um, and up to his dying day, I think he, he did not really say that, he, that, that, that the system was evil. Um, he, he talked about it as a mistake or whatever, uh, but he did not say it is fundamentally evil. Um, and so I'm really sorry about that, actually. I, I was hoping that, that there would be a bit more magnanimity from those who were invo involved in the system and, and upholding, maintaining the system. But that did not come, you know. But some, of course, um, some of the clerk's closest um, associates, and I think of of Rolf Meyer now and Leon Lowe and, and others, um, uh, they they you know did everything they could to actually um, break down apartheid and to begin to build a new democracy. You mentioned earlier, uh, Edwin, about. Um, Desmond Tutu's wife, yeah. Leah, and I think you've you spent quite a lot of time supporting them them both over the last yeah. few years. Tell me a little bit about her. She's a, an activist in her own right. Yeah, she. I mean, he often acknowledged uh, her role. Um, I think she was the only one who could who could shut him up. Actually, um, he, 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 <laughs> he told he told us one day. He said he said Leah is not nice to me. Um, I was watching television and she put a little board uh, at the TV that says, uh, you are entitled to your own wrong opinion. <laughs> so, 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 um, uh, you know, he often referred to her in, in that way. You know, and she, I mean, she's very strong. She's, uh, an amazing person. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we must give credit to her because he would not have been what he was if it was not for her. Um, and she was very supportive of his ministry always. But, but I think correctly so, towards the end of his life, she was very protective of him. And I, and I supported her in this, you know. So um, when they, they, will li they live maybe 10 minutes away from where I live, yeah, in, in Armanis in the Western Cape. Uh, and I saw them a few times per week, you know, uh, in the last few years of their of their life and for me i always felt it was now important to care for them as people i wasn't concerned about him being this popular person of course when we went to the mall um close by here you know people all constantly stopped us and wanted to photograph with him and and so on and so forth but my my key concern was that he should be looked after in fact both of them should be looked after and um, that was also her key concern uh, towards the end. But she was always there, always supporting him. And you, you work now for the Desmond and Leah Tutu Legacy Foundation. Tell me a little bit about that work and what you'd like their legacy to be, I guess. Yes, first of all, I, I'm the development officer of the Desmond and Leah Tutu Legacy Foundation, meaning that, that I have to make sure that there's enough money to, you know, to keep the work um, uh, going on. So... So a lot of my work nowadays is just meeting with people, talking about um, the arch, about his legacy. We we will soon be opening the first official uh, exhibition, permanent exhibition of the arch in Cape Town. Um, 
and people will be able to walk through i think seven rooms where where you will you will be able to to learn much about the arch um and so the next few years we will be focusing on on keeping the memory alive but also not simply for us to look back but for us to learn lessons for example the first room of the exhibition will be on apartheid education or bantu education as it was called uh, but you know the kind of education that is pre prevalent amongst poor people in south africa today uh, can even be said to be worse than apartheid education uh, in the sense that um, you know people who live in extreme poverty go to schools where they are given um, really poor education um, and so it's important that we continue the struggle for quality education to all the children uh, today. So that's how that's how his legacy will continue. You know, while we struggle to ensure that this society becomes becomes much better and becomes the 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 kind of society that he certainly dreamed about. So, Reverend. Edwin Arison, so kind of you to give me your time to share your story of your activism. I'm, yeah, massively uh, inspired. I, I can't wait to, to share this episode with people. Let's just finish. Just tell me, what would you like people to remember from the life of Archbishop Desmond Tutu? I think I, I, I want to say to as many people as possible, that the arch was very close to God every single day. What he did and what he said publicly uh, was born uh, and nurtured in many, many hours of silence in, 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 in the daily Eucharist. Um, that's where it all started. Um, and I would really want to encourage, particularly Christian, young Christian activists, you know, to make time for silence because it is out of the silence that true solidarity will, will come. Um, otherwise, you're just a noisy gong. You know, you make, you make a lot of noise. Um, but there has to be depth to, to the solidarity. And the depth will come because you seek um, the deeper things. Uh, silence, silence love that's what you should be seeking um, and out of that will come real solidarity uh, with those who need it most edwin thank you so much for your time okay thank you god bless bye-bye <laughs>